This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The COP28 Climate Summit took place earlier this month in Dubai. There were some storylines that came out of it, that's for sure. Let's find out what jumped out at journalist Arno Kopecki. Hey, good morning, Arno. Good morning, Dave. Arno, let's start with a real easy question. Biggest storyline out of COP28? I'm going to confound it because there was two, really. Uh, you know, there was the text and the subtext, Dave. Uh, the text for me was like everybody going into it was, are they going to name the elephant in the room, which is fossil fuels? Uh, you know, these meetings have been happening for almost 30 years. This was the 28th one. Never before had the words fossil fuels entered into a climate change agreement, even the Paris Agreement that everybody always references. So, you know, this year, everybody was like, OK, let's do it. Let's name it. Let's get them to say we need to phase out fossil fuels. So that was like the one big thing. Is that going to happen? And then the other, the subtext was sort of behind the curtains, peeking out of the curtains, was the role of fossil fuel nations. Uh, this meeting was hosted by the United Arab Emirates, which is a key member of OPEC, uh, basically a petrostate, the very definition. And the president of COP28 was himself the president of one of the biggest oil companies in the world, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, the United Arab Emirates National Oil Company. So it really felt like, you know, is this the fox watching the hen house here, which is what a lot of people felt going into it. What role is that going to play? Like, are they just going to like scuttle the whole thing? And then, of course, a few days before the meetings even began, uh, the BBC reported that the United Arab Emirates was using this meeting, they were hosting all these oil countries, hosting all these countries, they were going to use the meeting to strike a bunch of oil deals and, and oil and gas deals with many of the countries who were coming, including Canada. Uh, so that happened right before everybody arrived and the meeting started and that boom, then it was like, okay, let's go. Yeah, so Arno, I know that you 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 run a little bit tighter in these circles than I do, right? I, I was more casually yeah. observing from the outside, from a broadcast journalist perspective, not a specialist. But it really felt like some of that fossil fuel conversation and the specificity of naming fossil fuels in a final agreement that said we're going to transition away, at least mm -hmm. uh, some like at least in some kind of coded language, we are going to transition away from fossil fuels. It did feel like for about six to seven days, the conference and summit was totally derailed by that tension. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, there was. There's all kinds of ways to look at it. You know, some people, I think there is an argument that, yeah, you know, you can't have these agreements without involving oil and gas producing nations in some way. Canada is the fourth biggest oil and gas producing nation. We host, hosted one of these meetings a few years ago. Like, we could also be accused of being a petrostate. Uh, you need to involve them in the talks, but will they approach them in, in good faith? Look, I think um, you said the language exactly, that the final language was uh, the... Uh, that the countries are called on to transition away from from fossil fuels. So the words fossil fuels got in there. It's sort of weak, vague language. But nevertheless, I am of the view that words do matter and countries can be, leaders can be held accountable to the words they have said. Now we have named the thing. They didn't agree to phase out 
uh, fossil fuels, you know, these diplomatic meetings, all the little words matter so much. Um, and there's nothing binding about this. So that's, of course, there, there aren't really any teeth to this stuff. Um, nevertheless, you know, I think given the the inevitable million compromises, I think it was an okay outcome. Like the thing people have to remember is every country, 197 countries, I believe, at these things, every single one of them has a veto on the final statement. So uh, it's going to be really hard to get, you know, I think there's the sort of a exercise in managing expectations, uh, what you actually expect these things to accomplish. And to me, the driver of where it's going and sort of both of those things are happening at once. The, the optimism that can be shared from at least 197 countries agreeing to this and not vetoing the final language, that is optimistic. That is something that's, that's, that's of note. But something, I, that, I, I feel that way, yeah. but, but something that I've been yammering on about, because I love to do me a good yammer, Arno, is that it, kind, it, it kind of doesn't matter what you agree to in Abu Dhabi at a UN summit. It kind of matters how policy translates domestically. And the reality is Canada can't hold that much sway over the rest of the world. But it feels like even internally, even that language of a transition away is going to raise political hackles and is going yeah. to be a nightmare, whether it be on the political stage or on the court stage. 100% Dave uh excellent yammering there you've been we've been echoing each other in our in our various I think where the rubber hits the road is always when the leaders come home and so again Canada fourth biggest oil producer on earth there's this huge thing where you know the federal government has no control over production in Alberta and Saskatchewan where all of our basically all of our oil and gas is produced um those are pro provincial jurisdictions and so of course those are like very much petro states. So you have Alberta's premier, Danielle Smith, and, and Saskatchewan's premier, Scott Moe, who went to United Arab Emirates to be to, to Dubai, basically to throw grenades at Stephen Guilbeault, the federal environment and climate minister. Uh, they went there to just basically scuttle anything he could do. And, and Canada came home with two big announcements. Basically, they said, OK, we're going to reduce methane emissions by 75% by 2030 and we're going to introduce a cap on emissions because emissions is what Ottawa can control. And Ooh. so of course Danielle Smith and Scott Moe said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, that's crazy. It's unconstitutional, it's dangerous, it's expensive, it's technologically impossible. Um never mind that uh the oil companies themselves have already like in their announcements of 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 uh of what's it uh capping they they basically said that we can do this but now when the federal government uh tries to cap emissions danielle smith says well that's a de facto cap on production and you may not tell us to reduce production so all to say there is now a big war being set up between the federal government and the provinces who actually control production and i think what's significant about these meetings is that you know now stephen after dubai we've had a number of cabinet ministers say okay, yes, look, like the world needs to produce less fossil fuels. Um, and that's, you know, that's a big thing to say in this country. And yeah. it inevitably produces a lot of uproar from people like Danielle Smith. And it starts a really, I think, important conversation that will trickle down to voters in the coming elections. <laughs>
Although uh, folks like Daniel Smith and Scott Moe uh, put uh, some pretty good financing behind what was a very effective commercial campaign about renewable energy on the electric grid, uh, maybe a little disingenuous, but uh, every football game I watched, I saw that commercial about 14 times about oh, uh, showing the, actually... un the unreliability of uh, power in your kitchen during the holidays if we move towards renewable energy. So they're, they're fighting that battle on the ground, not just at the political stumps, but on the TV totally. airwaves as well. I got, I got to watch more football and, and catch some of those commercials. I believe we did a segment about uh, what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine a few months ago, did we not? <laughs> yeah, we sure did. We sure I guess did. they we, didn't watch that. We tackled yeah. a couple misconceptions. Hey, Arno, oh, no. we, got, we got to be a little quick on this one. I've uh, mismanaged the clock badly today, but I'm making <laughs> you put on your consulting hat because the sure. one thing that I had about this COP28 summit is it felt like we were rehashing a lot of old territory, right? I don't need the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Gutierrez, to tell me that we're at a critical point in the Earth's uh, climate, because I know, yeah. I know. I, I lived through wildfire season this summer. I know the flooding that's going on across Canada, the wildfires in Hawaii, wildfires in Europe. I, I know, I understand, I fundamentally get it. What I wonder if these conferences and summits were really going to go somewhere for here, I would love it to be a bit more of a knowledge-based and knowledge-sharing kind of opportunity where best practices are brought together. So let's say your final language is going to say, we are going to try and transition away from fossil fuels. Okay, how do you do that? What's the actual practical way in which we can offer advice to these countries to go home and say, let's put these policies in place? So I'll give you a for example here. Since Russia invaded Ukraine, Europe invested trillions of dollars to try and create more renewable energies on the continent and change the way they consume energy. I would have loved for COP28 to have taken two or three days to do an in-depth analysis and study of the transition that Europe has made in the last 18 months. Like, 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 I, I'm not saying that you have to agree or disagree with me, but how would you potentially change the way these conferences are executed to be a little bit more pragmatic? Or am I like way off base here? Tell me I'm a dummy and my premise is no good. Well, uh, I would never call you a dummy. Okay. Uh, <laughs> not, not live on the air. Okay. Uh, but, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think, this, look, the, the, the background of this was this was a global stock take. That was sort of the language. And it was the idea is, OK, they, they actually are looking at, OK, how far have each of the individual countries come in the commitments they made to reach by 2030 in terms of getting up? Well, now getting off of fossil fuels. And what can we do to ratchet up uh, those ambitions? Because, of course, every country is, is behind on its commitments. So there is, if you look into the nitty gritty, there is quite a bit of specificity specificity around how each individual country can meet these targets and accelerate its you know decarbonization getting away from fossil fuels so to your point about renewables there was a very specific commitment around globally tripling the amount of renewable energy production there was language around increase like uh, embracing nuclear power as part of that canada also has like you know again it comes down to specific country things so for Canada, I can say, you know, we're, we're committing to reduce methane emissions by 75%. And because we can't force Alberta to reduce production, we can force them to reduce emissions. So that happened at every, like every country had to say those things and bring those things and say, okay, this is exactly what we're doing. Um, and this is how we're gonna, this is how we're gonna, you know, go forward. Now, the problem is that there nothing is legally binding about this, but I think you're you're saying more like, can we just get like a clear view of 
of you know without necessarily having legal commitments to to do things but can we understand where we're at yeah um the best the I, best I, best practices the best best, best practices practice. I don't. Yes. Yeah, so it's a good question, you know, and, and um, I don't think that these meetings are the venue for that. I don't think that's the point of that. I, I take these as like you said, you know, Antonio, everybody comes out there and makes these grand announcements. And, and we've already heard those things. But I, I guess I see this almost as, again, a, a reflection as much as a driver of where the world is at in terms of uh, fighting climate change. And the mm. fact that all the countries of the world come together once a year for 30 years to fight this. It is such a flawed process. The fact that every country has a veto automatically like defangs it. Nevertheless, I do see it as this annual burst of reminders like, look, we have a crisis on our hands. We need to deal with it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to hash this out. You know, it's like this weird global relationship that is so complex and, and contradictory and and a uh, little naive optimistic prairie born Arno uh, <laughs> takes some part in the fact that we do keep getting together to like make these announcements and yes it is always going to fall short of, of what is needed um but there are it's certainly not the only thing happening there are all kinds of other global uh, meetings and initiatives going on where best practices are being shared and discussed and analyzed and there's you know an entire eco global ecosystem of ngos and advocacy groups and and governmental groups that are that are looking at, at exactly that and i just mm. don't know if cop if these conference of the parties meetings are the place necessarily to do that you know we have these climate reports from the united nations framework on climate change that produces these huge climate reports every few years those are thousand pages long and those break down like with immense detail what every country is doing and could do and, and that's where i think a best, best practice is like if you're looking for that those reports are the place to parse some of this stuff you, you could have just called me a dummy. That would have been okay. Uh, Arno, th <laughs> Arno, thank you for this. Have a lovely holidays with the family and friends. Talk to you in 2024. Thanks, Dave, to you and to all the viewers as well. Happy, happy Christmas and New Year. That is climate journalist Arno Kopecki. Arno is also an author, and he's based in British Columbia. Coming up after the break, the holiday season is in full swing. Jenny Bovard, Megan Gilmore, and I reopen the holiday grab bag of topics. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.